we're going to be looking a little bit at forgiveness. Again, you're probably thinking, gosh, can we be done with this topic? It's like three weeks in a row. And um, sorry, no. After this week, we can, we can be done. Uh, but we really do need to sink our teeth into what the Lord has for us this morning because there is a very clear understanding that in Scripture, God pursues us in forgiveness. Micah did an awesome job kind of pulling us together to understand that we are Gomer. Like we are people who need to be restored, bought back, and, and forgiven. And um, God willingly does that. Such a great reminder a couple of weeks ago. And then Rick last week just kind of brought this idea of what does forgiveness really look like from God and then uh, with other people. You can either accept it, you can reject it, or his famous category, other. Because why commit to really naming something? Let's just call it other. Like what would you really do with forgiveness if you don't accept it, if you don't reject it? What's it do? And overall, we have this understanding now that as God has pursued us and as we begin to pursue other people, we are, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, ministers of reconciliation. But you cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. And so we're going to be defining some of those things this morning. Uh, You can turn in your pew Bible, if you use a pew Bible, or you can just turn on your Bible, to Matthew chapter 18, page 823 in the black Bible in front of you. And that's where we'll spend a little bit of time this morning in the text. We're going to be looking at the foundation of forgiveness, uh, the heart of forgiveness, and then the practice of forgiveness. Like, how do we actually put this into practice on a regular basis? Uh, And along the way, we're going to be talking about some things that have been very difficult in prep. As you you start to prepare and think through um, something that you think, well, I I feel like maybe I have a fairly good handle on this. Um, and then you learn that you don't. You, you, you learn that there are possibly ways in which you have not forgiven, and that bitterness has risen up in you, and it's taken root, it's taken hold. And so um, it's been a very convicting and challenging week in that regard for me as I've put this together. And so just full disclosure, there's going to be plenty of things here that I think are going to be challenging. And so what I want to do here is um, I'm going to pray for you, but also for me. I'm going to pray for you guys to understand, like, just hands open wide, heart open wide. Lord, what do you want to speak to me today? Because too often we just think, well, I'm going to learn something today. No, no, I want to integrate something. (laughs) I want some truth to saturate my soul and come out of my bones because of how I understand the goodness of the gospel of God. So, Father, this morning as we come to you, we just lay before you situations in which we need to have a better grasp of your forgiveness. It will never start for us to look at how we should forgive other people if we don't first understand you. So soften us this morning. Show us those places where we have allowed bitterness to take root. Show us those places that you want to reveal and then heal by your mercy and your grace. Pray these things in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 18. And I'll just read the whole text at once and we'll kind of refer back to it. Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? If you remember Rick's message last week, he talked about, you know, three was the basic time in Jewish law that uh, you, you could forgive, and then after that, you could kind of write somebody off. So here's Peter looking pious. Look at me. I'm actually going more than double. 
you know? So he said, should I forgive him seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter's like, shoot. <laughs> that kind of backfired. And he goes on, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you look at your footnotes, you're going to see that 10,000 talents is worth, uh, or one talent is worth about 20 years wages. So I don't know how bad this guy was at managing money, but it must have been of epic proportions because he was in the hole a fair bit, okay? And since, listen to this, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. If you want the clearest, simplest explanation or definition of forgiveness, it's right there. It's release. I no longer hold you liable to pay me back for what you owe me because of the wrong you did to me. I release you. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, obviously a much smaller sum, and seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. First of all, seriously, how short-sighted is this fellow? <laughs> I mean, he, he barely got out of the drive-thru and he's already turning around going back for another meal. You're like, come on, man. So this fellow servant... Um, so his fellow servant refused and went and put him in prison. Or sorry, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay back the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, obviously. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because I had mercy on you. And be, or sorry, because you pleaded with me. And should you now, and should you not, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers. And there's a footnote there, jailers meaning torturers. Okay, so that gives you a little picture of what happens when you choose not to forgive someone. Okay? You're willingly saying, I'll take torture. Find someone who struggles with unforgiveness and I'll find someone who is tormented internally. And then he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's hard. You say, well that, you know, I'm never going to be in debt that much. I mean, seriously, Doug. 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Years and years and years and years of more than I could ever earn wages owed to somebody. Let's think of it this way. Consider the child who watches their parents' marriage fall apart and their dad cheat on their mom and walk out. Can you get a picture of unforgiveness? Or how about the high school student who constantly and in front of others is belittled and made fun of and held out to be a laughing stock, now heading to their 10-year class reunion to see the one person who spearheaded that effort at defamation. 
How do you think they're feeling? Or how about the guy in his late 40s who loses his job? No prior understanding, no great context. You see, it's no wonder that 51 times in the Gospels alone, 51 times, the word forgive or derivative is used by Jesus. 51 times. That's just the Gospels. You see, each of us here can think of someone we need to forgive. I guarantee it. All of these problems that we just mentioned, the story we just read, there is a way that you can handle it that you will walk right into a prison of your own making and you'll be locked inside. But you know the warden and you know the key and it's your choice. So what are you going to do? And I would just say this, if you get nothing else today, that forgiveness frees victim and perpetrator alike. It does. It just does. It frees the person who is holding on to something to view someone through the lens and the eyes of Jesus Christ, which make no mistake, is far better than the way that you typically view someone. And it frees the person who did the wrong to be humble and receive what needs to happen. So the foundation of forgiveness is pretty plain. Um, Psalm 103, 8 through 13 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide or correct. He will not always, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's premeditated sin, right? So I thought about it and I wanted to do it. But he doesn't treat me according to those. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love of those toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In the parable, it says that the master had pity. We think pity like, oh, he got a break. Pity in the Greek is actually the sense of feeling compassion and experience of someone. It's empathy. Someone comes to you and begs to you to be forgiven, and, and there's a sense of feeling that you have for them that moves you toward forgiving them. Yet God does that when I'm still with my foot on his throat, when I'm still his enemy, when I'm still choking him out. He is offering me something I could never earn on my own. Can I just say that God is mercifully unfair to us? He is mercifully unfair. Yeah, grace is getting something that you don't deserve, or, or rather getting, not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is different. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. And here's God, the same coin, two sides. And he's offering us grace, and he's offering us mercy. And so let me just say it this way. Considering the unfair response, because it is unfair, if the wages of sin is death, I should be crushed and consumed in a moment. But considering that, what impact would that have on you when you are wronged, when you're hurt? How would you walk that out? 
to know, man, God has been mercifully unfair. In, in, in my lust and in my greed and in my anger and all that stuff, he's coming to me and he's saying, look, I'm here and I want to forgive you. How does that change then how I approach somebody else who on a repeat cycle does the same things to me? Does that give me permission then? If God is mercifully unfair to me on a repetitive cycle, does that give me permission then to be fair? Let's put it that way. Can I be fair towards someone? And I would just argue as a Christian, I don't know that you can be. I don't know that you should be. So that's the foundation of forgiveness. God is mercifully unfair. Well, let's look at the heart of forgiveness. And by heart, I mean, how can we prepare our heart in forgiveness? Because there are some of you here this morning, and I'll lump myself in this category, who I can look around this room and I can see faces of people who have said harmful things to me. And I can think of experiences that I've had with people that have been very difficult to swallow. And I can think of ways in which I've wanted to get back. Again, I said full disclosure at the beginning, so sorry if I'm making you a little uncomfortable. But I can think of it. And so here's my question. How can I move toward you if Travis Stuber has wronged me, how can I move toward Travis if in my heart I have not forgiven him? If the disposition, Scripture says in, in Proverbs 4.23 that out of the overflow of the heart, right, there's this, um, the, the heart is the wellspring of life. It's coming out of me. Matthew talks about this idea that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So if my heart has not dealt with Travis, certainly my mouth never should. Certainly my actions never should but I do it all the time. So the heart of forgiveness must be properly cultivated. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says it this way. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Do you want a hindered prayer life? You're like, well, God, just like, my, my prayers are hitting the ceiling. Check your forgiveness. <laughs> like, there's definitely a piece there. Or in Matthew 6, 12, when, when Jesus is teaching the Lord's Prayer, there's a reason why, right after he talks about give us sustenance for each day, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. It's, it's again, I don't get to receive forgiveness and then not extend it. That's like antithetical to being a believer. You just can't do that. But I want you to notice something in Mark eleven twenty five 25 and in Matthew 6, 12. In both of these cases, this is you speaking with God. Travis, if we're using my previous example, is nowhere part of the picture. Because he doesn't have to be yet. If he said something unknowingly and it harmed me and I took offense at it and, and I was wounded in my heart, it, I'm having a conversation with the Lord first. Because if I don't, I'm going to come at him with all the justice in my heart, misguided by my flesh. Danger. And so we think, like, you're addressing the attitudes of your heart in prayer. But I want to warn you, vertical accounting must always precede horizontal reconciliation. I must take it to the Lord first, otherwise my, my horizontal relationships are just going to be messed up. 
there's two great obstacles here. And there's probably more, but two that I could think of off the top of my head since, you know, I don't know everything. I'll just say two of the most often that I see in my own heart. Superiority and insecurity. Think of it this way. I can remain, I've read this before and it just sticks at, in my heart. I can remain bitter toward Travis only so long as I feel superior to him. Like I would never do what he did to me. So therefore, I have one leg up and I'm superior to him. You're like, really? Think about it. Think about those people with whom you are holding a grudge and you're struggling. Like, I don't know if I can forgive this person. And then just ask yourself the question, would you ever do what they did to you? And immediately you might go, no. Okay, there you are. You think you're superior. And you're like, oh. That one got straight to the heart. But how about inferiority or insecurity? Right? And the best way that I can characterize this is just to say, if I don't know who I am in Christ, if I truly don't know the foundation of my identity in Jesus Christ, there is no limit to how Travis can hurt me. Anything can get me. A comment about my work performance, a comment about my parenting, a comment about my marriage, a comment about how I eat, a comment about how I look or what I wear. Anything can get to me. There's no end to it. It just keeps growing. But if I know who I am in Christ, his comments have a limit because it's not my identity. And I can actually look at and approach him in a way that makes sense and is actually constructive for him. You see, in God's anger at sin, he has a constructive displeasure that seeks to make me whole. In my anger at being wounded by a friend, I want to have a constructive displeasure that works toward his wholeness. That's how forgiveness should work. You say, well, how can you really know these things? Think about it this way. If a six-year-old kid comes up and critiques me and tells me, boy, Doug, this sermon stunk. Pick okay. But if Steve Thompson comes up to me and says, this sermon stinks, why? Because I want to impress him. I'm insecure. And it's hard for me to have a heart fully cultivated and prepared to forgive when my heart is inwardly bent and can only think about me. You're like, well, what's the solution then? Abundant repentance. <laughs> Abundant repentance. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he was the chief of sinners. You're like, dude, you wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. How in the world are you the chief of sinners? If you're chief, I'm screwed. But he's like, no. I'm the chief. He had a view of himself that didn't allow him to get past this idea of, I want you to confront my sin because you love me. He never got past that. Neither should we. Abundant repentance is the answer. I actually love it this way. One guy says, a lack of forgiveness toward others is the direct result of a lack of repentance toward God. Just let that sit for a minute. <laughs> a lack of forgiveness toward others 
is the direct result of a lack of repentance toward God. Find me someone who struggles with bitterness and, and unforgiveness in their heart, and I'll find you someone who thinks that sin is no big deal. So maybe a good question to ask yourselves at this point is what are your obstacles to forgiveness? Why won't you forgive someone? Especially if we're talking about the cultivation of the heart where I don't actually have to have a conversation with with Travis to forgive him. I can actually, in my heart, forgive. Again, it's reconciliation of restoring the warmth of that relationship that Christ is calling us to. But I can't do that unless I forgive him in my heart. That's why when you're parenting and one kid takes a toy from another kid and you say, tell him sorry and give it back, doesn't work. Because you're not actually solving anything. You're not actually addressing a deeper root conviction issue and you're actually saying, why did you want it in the first place? What were you willing to do to get it? What was the point of that? And then to say, would you please forgive me? Meaning, I did something that created a wedge between us and now I'm asking you, would you choose, you know, you may not feel like it, but would you choose to not hold that against me? That's how God deals with our sin. God doesn't, if this pulpit is my sin and Psalm 103 is God, right? God doesn't, God doesn't like take this thing and just obliterate it and make it disappear. He stands to the side and here's me and I'm right next to him and my sin is in full view and he's choosing not to hold it against me. How much greater does that make his love? How much more awesome does that make his forgiveness that it's not held against me? Not that it's obliterated or annihilated or somehow gone, but that it's something that he says, I'm not holding that against you. You may be the chief of all sinners, Doug, and I am, but I am not holding it against you because of the blood of Jesus. Man, if we could just wrap our minds around that. So what are your obstacles to forgiveness? Maybe jot a few down now. And finally, we're looking at the practice of forgiveness or practicing forgiveness. And I say this because this is what leads us toward reconciliation. Rick's point last week of accepting or rejecting or other when it comes to forgiveness gets us started down the road toward this heart conversation. How am I posturing my heart before God? Am I like this or am I like this? What's the difference? How are you posturing your heart before God? Because it's going to lead to a practice. You see, Matthew 18, 15, just before this, there's a conversation, and it says this. If your brother sins, multiple, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Peter's still mulling this over in his mind. And a few verses later in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. As clear as I can, there is a reason that Jesus in these two passages indicates that the other person who did wrong to you is a repeat offender. If I ask you the question, who do you struggle to forgive? Most of us would be like, well, you know, 
the one who does it over and over, who demonstrates no pattern or desire of change, who actually just gets locked into the same thing over and over and over again. And it's like, they're not changing. Don't forgive them. Throw up the boundaries. I can't. Is that how Jesus does it with you? Well, it's been 490 times, Doug, that you've struggled with lust. It's about time that you're written off. No, doesn't do that. And thankfully, he's mercifully unfair. Right? Because if at 491 he got fair, we're all done. The reason Jesus characterizes each of these people in the passage as repeat offenders is because in sharing humanity, he gives us abundant practice for forgiveness. Doesn't he? How many times have I had to forgive my wife? She's had to forgive me like six times. But it's hard, isn't it? So here's what I wanted to do to kind of wrap up. I wanted to look at some suggested steps. So we're looking at forgiveness from the heart, yes. Now we're at a point where our hearts are prepared and cultivated and ready to forgive someone. In fact, we have forgiven them. But now we're going to move into this idea of what does it mean to restore warmth to a relationship? And I want to be very clear, right? There are people in this room who have endured sexual abuse. Okay? You can forgive your abuser. Probably not a great idea for you to reconcile with them. Do you see the difference? I'm not going to restore a relationship with someone who causes great harm to me in that way. So if I have a long-standing relationship with like a family member and it's damaging to me, there are ways that you can forgive them. And as Romans 12, 18 talks about, um, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Somebody may not want peace with me. Sorry. Not being a jerk, I'm just saying, some people may not want peace with you. That's why, that's why Paul thought about that and said, hey, as long as it depends on you, or as far as it depends on you, do what you can. Do what you can. You see, in Matthew 5, it talks about this idea that when you are putting your gift on the altar and there you remember somebody has something against you, you should go take care of it. That's actually when you need to go seek forgiveness. That's a sermon for another day, but I did want to point it out because that is, it's always your move. Whether I'm going to be offering forgiveness to someone or, or extending forgiveness to somebody else, I, it's always my move. I can't complain that that person hasn't come to me yet. I need to, it's always my move to move toward them. You see, the reality is when I choose not to extend forgiveness and move toward reconciliation meaning I'm going to leave my gift on the altar and go solve the problem with this person. I'm actually saying that I'm going to do a better job of getting justice for the wrong than God is. And if you say that, and you're praying to God at the same time, you are one conflicted individual. Seriously. I mean, you just be, your mind just blows up because you can't hold those two tensions. But see, in forgiving, we are called to hold three realities together. And by forgiving, I mean by forgiving and reconciling, by moving toward reconciliation. We're called to hold three realities together, and none of us does it perfectly. The three realities are obedience, truth and accountability, and justice. And I'll explain those just real briefly. But we, we tend to hold one of these carefully, like if you confront me, you don't love me. 
which is wrong. True love does confront somebody. Or if you love me, you would look past these things. Not necessarily. The reality is forgiveness and reconciliation is obedience to Scripture. Ephesians 4.32 says you are supposed to forgive as your heavenly Father in Christ has forgiven you. You see, the disciple of Jesus, unwilling to forgive another one long term, may be better served examining the validity of their faith commitment to Jesus than complaining about the person who they can't reconcile to. If you've forgiven someone in your heart before God, then you can move toward them in, in the following ways. Ephesians 4, verse 15, says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then skip down to verse 25, says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So truth and accountability. When you begin to obey the call of Christ and you're moving toward reconciliation, truth and accountability are critical. You're like, well, what does that really mean? I would just say it this way. In truth, you are naming the wound. What happened? What hurt you? What was so difficult? What did you take offense at? You're being able to name that when you come to that person in conversation. And here's the challenging part. We do this because we value accountability. Because we value accountability. The hard part is we will often defame or belittle or exaggerate or malign character in the process. You have to surrender the right to get even. If you want to reconcile with someone, you have to surrender the right to get even. You see, usually we want someone to pay. The person who hurt us, we want them to pay in some way, shape, or form. We want them to experience the difficulty, the hurt, the wounding that we experience. We want them to have that. Why? Because we think that's the best form of justice. It's so interesting that we want the one who hurt us to pay while the one we hurt already paid just a simple understanding of the gospel. And then you move down to verses 25 through 27, and we're looking at, I call it gentle justice, right? So when I'm sharing the truth with someone, this is how you hurt me, and, and I'm holding them accountable for the words and actions that they had, I'm doing so in a way that is gracious and winsome and caring and loving. Why? Because I always want to leave the door open for reconciliation. If I come at Travis hard and fast, hey, jerk, guess what you did to me when you spoke up and you embarrassed me in front of all of my friends? Okay, that's true. <laughs> Probably not the best tact. Might get you punched in the mouth. But in reality, what I'm doing is I'm trying to hold him accountable, right? Well, I just did it the wrong way. As opposed to, hey, Travis, um, you have a minute? These last couple of weeks... In my heart, I've noticed as, as we've been spending time together that I'm bothered. And I think it's because that conversation, when there was a bunch of people around, there were some things that you said that, that felt like an attack on me. Am I seeing it correctly? 
Can you help me? One invites a conversation. The second one does not. And so you can read through the verses on your own. Proverbs 15, 1 through 4 really hammers this home. But I'm careful to share accurately and graciously what happened. And then I actually redress the wrong. I say something like, in the future, now that we're in agreement that what you said was a little bit hurtful, in the future, I'd really appreciate if that was something you avoided, that you just wouldn't do. There are different ways. If you want to pull me aside and have a conversation, and we can talk about it then, but please don't do it like that again. You're like, who does that? Christians should. <laughs> right? All of us should. So remember the child who's now an adult? They've forgiven their father for walking out. Imagine their interaction. Imagine the possibility of reconciliation. Or the student who sees the source of their pain who made fun of them all those years in high school, now at the 10-year reunion, and they've forgiven him in their heart. Imagine the interaction. Or about the one who lost his job, and he now sees his boss out and about, and he can interact with him without bitterness. Imagine. Imagine the possibilities. That the prison doors are open because forgiveness frees victim and perpetrator alike. Let me pray for us as we go grab some lunch. Father, thank you uh, just for the time here this morning of how you cultivate an understanding of forgiveness in our hearts. Help us now. If there are things or that people have done or, or just people in general that we have not forgiven, man, soften us, Lord. Show us how you don't treat us as our sins deserve so that we can treat others in the same way. We love you. We ask a blessing on this next hour where we spend time eating together. Pray that people would be blessed and encouraged and knit together in love as your word says. Amen.